from John chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter, which is quite long, um, but it's a kind of standalone, so bear with. It'll be up there on the screens if you want to read along. Indeed, even if you are happy to read along the screens, but you want to have it open for later on, um, then grab one of the Bibles off the tables. There's free movement in here, so you don't need to worry uh, about disturbing anyone. Um, So we're going to read John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. Galilee's in the north, Judea's in the south. Jerusalem's in Judea. Galilee, Sea of Galilee, countryside, small villages and towns. Judea, Jerusalem, the kind of the capital, the big smoke, okay? He did not want to go about in Judea, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. Nobody wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he'd said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Festival of tabernacles lasts seven days, okay? Just so the next bit, you know where we are. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Now, that's referring to the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? 
He is, here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will, will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and, was one, and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Amen. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Last Sunday was Mother's Day. The Sunday after next Sunday is Easter Sunday. The shops are having a ball because it's that time of year. It's that time of year where... Uh, we spend money and where festivals and celebrations controlled by the commercial interests largely round about will dictate that this is the time when you spend money. Mother's Day is 
uh, a bigger and bigger and bigger celebration every year, it seems. I started seeing Mother's Day advertising at the beginning of March, so for a whole solid month, there was uh, advertising of all sorts, way beyond just, you know, chocolate and flowers, so last decade. You know, we're into the legion of, you know, we're into the realms of jewelry now, foreign holidays, you know. And then, of course, uh, Easter. I went into uh, a branch of Asda yesterday and was confronted with a wall of Easter eggs. Uh, and the person in front of me in the queue uh, was well stocked with Easter eggs. I don't know how many relatives she had, but certainly they were not going to be missing out. We know what it looks like when festivals come around. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three festivals that took place in the Jewish calendar, which were the kind of anchor festivals. If you could go to Jerusalem to celebrate them, you did. Two of them, uh, Passover and Pentecost, were in the spring. Passover commemorating the, the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. Pentecost, a harvest Thanksgiving celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated in the autumn. This year it will be celebrated, it will finish. The last and greatest day of the festival in 2019 will be October the 20th. And so Sukkot, as it's called, it's the plural for Sukkah, which is a, a tabernacle or a wee tent, um, not a wee, you know, transmit or tea in the park tent, but a kind of wee booth changing room type tent. That's the kind of style and design of them. I know that because when Ruth and I lived briefly, well, for a few months uh, in Israel, we stayed with a couple and we stayed with them during the week of tabernacles. And uh, they lived in a block of flats, but nonetheless, they wanted to be observant Jews. And so there was a kind of flat concrete play area outside um, their block of flats. And so everybody in the, in, the, in the flats who wanted to celebrate tabernacles erected their little, um, I don't know what it would have been, two meter by two meter by two meter tent uh, in, in the back garden and, or the, this kind of concrete area. And we had our meals out there. Now, the idea was you're supposed to live there for seven days. But uh, as a nod to uh, modern-day tabernacles, they didn't actually live in that little tent. It was kind of like a kind of religious Wendy house, probably, really. Um, but we did have our meals out there for, for the week, or probably just one meal a day, I think, our main evening meal. We went out, and we, we had our meal in this little tent. The point of the Feast of Tabernacles was a reminder to the people of Israel of the 40 years that they lived in tents in the wilderness. So it was a reminder. And actually it came after the harvest had been gathered in. The Pent Pentecost in the spring was a kind of first fruits harvest. But after the main harvest had been brought in of grapes, of olives, of figs, of dates, of the, the, the crops in the field. So everything's been gathered in and stored. The olives have been pressed. The grapes have been pressed and they're uh, for, for, for new wine, and it's often in uh, vats being fermented to make wine. The olives have been pressed, mention them. The dates and the, uh, the, the uh, raisins and so on, and figs would be pressed as well. And so, after this period of ingathering, where it looks like your cupboards are full 
A bit like my mother's kind of third World War cupboard. My mother has a World War III cupboard, which is stocked kind of floor to ceiling with tins just in the case of an emergency. Uh, so that if she was unable to get out of the house for any length of time, she would survive. I'm not sure she'd survive all that well on the, some of the tins that I threw out when I went through her cupboard at one stage and checked the dates. But nonetheless, when you've got a full cupboard, when your freezer's stocked and the fridge is full, when there's maybe even a little bit of money in the bank and your electric's paid for and your rent's paid for and everything seems to be covered for the time being, it's very easy, isn't it, to imagine that actually I'm all right. I've kind of got it sorted. I'll take it from here, thank you. And so the Feast of Tabernacles, Tabernacles was deliberately set on the back of the ingathering of the harvest so that for seven days the Israelites would be put back out into tents and reminded. And reminded that actually your plenty comes from God. Your sufficiency is not your freezer or your uh, olives or your wine or whatever. Your sufficiency is not in the fact that I've got enough just now. Your sufficiency comes from God. And that's in the seasons of plenty and in the seasons of want. Paul writes to the Philippians, I've learned to be content whether living in plenty or in want. I've learned, in fact, he says, the secret of being content, whether living in plenty or in want. The secret of trusting Jesus, both when the freezer's full and when the freezer's empty. And so Tabernacles uh, was this seven-day-long festival and, and just like Easter here is an Easter egg bonanza, even amongst religious and non-religious Jews, when, when Ruth and I were in um, Tiberias, we were staying in Tiberias when Tabernacles was on, and it was an open-air market just before Tabernacles started because uh, you have to get a myrtle branch and you have to get a piece of fruit that's called an etrog, and there's four things that you have to have to wave. And so we went out to this market where all the stuff was in and everybody was going, you know, squeezing the fruit to get the best one, the firmest one, the yellowest one, the biggest one, the best branch, the one with the best kind of aerodynamics. And so they're, they're, they're just, just like you would if you go and buy your Christmas tree and everyone's standing around saying, hmm, have you got one bushier than that? Or a little shorter perhaps? Or I don't like the shape of that. The one side's missing. So people were just getting all their stuff ready for tabernacles. And it was this frenzy of consumption and of buying and of, of doing all the preparations. Why am I telling you that? Because this scene that I read to you, which is quite a long passage, is a scene, if you want one word that, that uh, or I'll give you two words that probably sum it up, is confusion and chaos. Every time there was a big festival on in Jerusalem, everybody came. And so it's a bit like Edinburgh at Hogmanay. Everybody, or Edinburgh during the, 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 the festival, or Edinburgh, or Glasgow. When's Glasgow? Hmm. Tea in the park, maybe? Transmit? I don't know. When there's a match on. Everybody comes. No, maybe not. That's different. Everybody comes to the city, and there's a certain uh, extra pressure. There's a bulge in the city. And this passage starts off with Jesus' brothers. Now, you don't actually 
spot Jesus having too many interactions with his brothers. These are his flesh and blood brothers. These are his half-brothers, Mary and Joseph's children. We know their names because Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 lists them. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Those were Jesus' brothers. James went on to uh, co-lead the Jerusalem church with Peter, but at this stage, he and his family were not believers. They did not know who Jesus was. They had not believed in him. It says that. We read it. Even his brothers, uh, own brothers, did not believe in him. And so James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas are arguably, perhaps, getting a little bit of the kind of um, celebrity lure about this strange elder brother. They're, they're wanting to push him forward. They're wanting him to go to Jerusalem because they believe and think that Jesus' goal and ambition is to become a public figure. Nobody wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Jesus never said he wanted to become a public figure. They're just putting their assumptions on. And of course, society that we live in, nonetheless, still operates according to the whole notion of public figure, wanting to be a celebrity, whether it be uh, your 15 minutes of fame on a game show or on a television reality show, whether it means having connections to uh, famous or important people, the, the cult of, of self-importance and of celebrity is as alive and well in our society as it was then. And Jesus' brothers didn't understand who he was, didn't understand that he was carrying out the mission that the Father gave to him. You know, ambition in Christian circles can be a dangerous thing. Now, it's good to have godly ambition. It's good to offer your life and to want God to take you and, and use you and to hope that your life can and will count for something in the kingdom of God. As long as you're prepared for that counting for something in the kingdom of God, potentially to be invisible, unremarkable, or insignificant. Because often the church can be scarred and marred by the ugly face of pride and self-importance and vanity and, and pushing for name and status and position. We read Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the first chapter. Paul takes them to task for having celebrity preachers. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And Paul says to them, you're not meant to be following any human being. This is not about celebrity. And so Jesus knows that his time is controlled by God. Sunday evenings, the last few weeks, I've been preaching on journeys because we're in Lent. And one of the journeys that I focused on was on Joseph's journey. Now, in one very short service, you can't do justice to the story of Joseph. But actually what you can do is see that most of Joseph's or a significant number of Joseph's years were lived under the cover of rejection, treachery, injustice, and false accusation. 
and just being forgotten. His own brothers hated him, were jealous of him. They conspired to get rid of him. They sold him to slave traders. He ended up in, a, uh, in, in uh, Potiphar's house. His wife uh, tried to take advantage of him and then uh, squealed when he, he refused her advances and she got him unfairly imprisoned. And he was languishing in jail for years. There was a chance to get out, but the guy who might have put a word in for him with Pharaoh forgot all about him. And another three years passed before Joseph got out. So for a significant number of years, Joseph, who was pivotal and really important in the purposes of God, was a prisoner, was a reject, was a slave, an immigrant slave actually, because he came from Canaan and he was now in Egypt. And he was abandoned in jail. And so God's timing proved to be everything for Joseph. And God's timing is no less significant and important for you and me. You know, your ambition as a Christian is to be who God wants you to be and to be where he wants you to be, when he wants you to be, and to be and to become all that he wants you to be. And what that looks like in real terms, what that looks like in terms of your job, your status, anything else is is in his hands. Jesus' brothers were clamoring after the wrong thing. Jesus was just doing the thing that the Father told and showed him to do. And so he didn't go up to the festival, but he did go up halfway through the week. And meanwhile, there's this frisson of expectation. Now, I'm reading this passage out of sync slightly. Well, I'm not reading out of sync because this is where we've got to in John. Tabernacles was in autumn. Next Sunday, we will be at Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the week before Passover. Okay, so we're going to fast forward six months, but I want you to think about this story because it's quite helpful to think about it this week because already, already tensions are rising. Already there's a a frisson in the air. Already the big question that is hovering in people's minds is who is this guy? Who is this guy? An opinion was sharply divided. As opinion is sharply divided, well, let me just say for argument's sake, between you guys in here and all the people who are out, well, not all the people, but probably many of the people who are out there. Now, I don't want to pass judgment on people just because they happen to be in Buchanan Street shopping on a Sunday. That's fine. But let's just, for argument's sake, assume that a significant proportion of people who are out there have either never heard of Jesus or haven't understood the importance of knowing Jesus, or just haven't believed in Jesus. And so we're in here because we're amongst those in the crowd who've recognized that he's a good man, but more than that, that he's the Son of God, who've believed and been given the faith and the gift to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In our Brexit-infested society at the moment, and sorry to use that dirty word again, but it doesn't go away just because we come in here on a Sunday. 
There's all sorts of anxiety and confusion. I said it last week, and we're no further forward this week. There's all sorts of anxiety and confusion about the, the, the way that the dust will settle politically in terms of our relations uh, with Europe, in terms of our relationships uh, with, within our own nation, and so on. And there's probably been just as many voices and just as many opinions and just as many options presented in the past two or three weeks as we find in this passage. Let me just do a little whistle-stop tour back through the passage again and remind you of how many voices there are. So after Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders are saying, where is he? So they're suspicious, and they want to see this guy. There's some people in the crowd saying, he's a good guy. There's some people in the crowd saying, no, he's a bad guy because he deceives the people. And then there's Jews who hear his teaching when he gets up and teach. And they're amazed and they say, how did this guy get this learning without being taught? And then a little while later on, we find the crowd, when Jesus teaching them, some of them are saying, you're demon-possessed. And Jesus takes them to task because they, they laud and revere Moses, but they haven't even recognized the one who gave the law to Moses, who's right there in front of them, the Word of God. I mean, the law of Moses is the Word, right? It's God's Word that he wrote down. And so here is the Word made flesh right in front of them, but they're all hung up on Moses. Then you've got the people of Jerusalem saying, is he the Messiah or is he not? What are the authorities saying? But he comes from Galilee. We're not supposed to know where the Messiah comes from, right? And then we're told that some people tried to seize him, but they couldn't, in the same way that once they tried to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth and he walked through the crowd. And it says, some people tried to seize him, no one laid a hand on him. It says, many in the crowd believed on him. And they said, well, when the Messiah comes, will, will the Messiah perform more signs than he's? He's done so much. He must be the Messiah. Meanwhile, the Pharisees and the chief priests have a little word with the temple guard and say, go and bring that guy in. And then Jesus, a little later on, stands and declares that monumental speech on the last day of the festival. And the reason why it's significant is because there was a vast quantity of water that was symbolically poured out on the last day of the festival. And it was poured out as an offering before God. And it was poured out as a kind of acted out prayer that God would continue to grant them water for another year and for another harvest. And so this pouring out of water, it was connected as well to, you remember Moses struck the rock in the desert and water came out? A recognition that God gives water. And right after that kind of climactic moment, It's a bit like, ah, I'm finding it hard to find a comparison. I suppose, this isn't a very good illustration, but it would be like a minute past midnight, okay, on New Year's Eve, or on the stroke of midnight, and everybody says, Happy New Year, and they're uh, 
they're, they're greeting one another, hugs, handshakes, kisses, and all the rest of it, saying, Happy New Year, hope it's a good one for you, and all that sort of stuff. Imagine Jesus stood up at that point in George Square or, or in Edinburgh in the Castle Rock or whatever and said through a microphone, If anyone wants to be absolutely certain that they're going to have a happy new year, come to me. Because you're just hoping for happiness, I can give it to you. You're just hoping for a good new year. I can give you not just a good new year, but a good new life. Now, New Year is not a religious festival for us in that sense. But you see, when they they poured out that water, which was a prayer to God to grant them water, and Jesus stands up and says in a loud voice, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And so the people are like, what did he just say? How dare he? How very dare he? What he's saying, he's the answer to our prayers? And so Jesus in Jerusalem was a controversial figure, some for him, some against him, some conspiring and trying to kill him. I was reading, or just begun to read. (laughs) I always have to tell you I'm reading a book when I'm in chapter 1 or chapter 2, because there's no guarantee that I'll get to chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, or 7 if I put the book down. But I started reading another book this week. (laughs) So far, so good. It's called Who Made God? And it's basically taking to task Richard Dawkins and the New Atheism and, and, uh, and, and the kind of confident secular uh, conclusion that says there is no God. And they think that the Trump question is who made God, which is a ridiculous question. It's a ridiculous question because it's only worth asking that question if absolutely everything if you believe that, that, that God is part of just the physically created order. But as soon as you step out of just the created order, you don't need a cause and effect. Anyway, that's for another day. But in our world and society, there are many voices raised in hostility against Jesus. In our nation at this time, there is much confusion. And I'm probably going to reach the same conclusion with this sermon as I reached last week. Because through... This whole chapter and all of this confusion and all of these voices saying different things. Who is he? Who could he be? Jesus is speaking and is speaking with authority and is saying to anyone who's willing to believe it that my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me and whoever chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever chooses to do the will of God will find out the truth. Ain't that the truth? That actually it's as you choose to do the will of God. It's as you give your life to Jesus with uh, faltering uncertainty perhaps, and say, you know, I don't know all the answers about Jesus. I don't know all the answers about the gospel. I don't know everything that I might like to know. But, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus. 
I believe that Jesus gave his life for me. And to whom else shall I go if not Jesus? And so Jesus comes and his voice echoes through the society and echoes through the world as it has done for 2,000 years. And the people that hear it and respond to it find out the truth. Lots of voices speaking to gain personal glory. Lots of voices in Parliament at the moment trying to uh, unknot Brexit, trying to line up perhaps their own ambitions, trying to tell their own short-term truth. But Jesus steadily, quietly, faithfully, persistently is advancing his kingdom. Brexit will get solved one way or another. We'll move on to the next crisis. There'll be other world crises. They're already there. They're already rising up. Libya, Syria, there's all sorts of other things going on. The world is never short of trouble. Jesus' brother's ambition for him was fame and celebrity. Jesus' ambition was to see the kingdom by stealth and steadiness extend, advance, grow, and increase. And here you all are. And that's true of every Christian gathering around the world because Jesus' kingdom, quietly and by stealth. Did any of you have your testimony reported in the local paper? Did any of you have your Christian journey of discipleship on the BBC News? Was anybody in public life or influence or position of significance interested in the fact that you'd become a Christian? No, because Jesus, by stealth, is building his kingdom. And in amongst all the voices and the confusion that are no less noisy, that are no less boisterous, that are no less competing and confusing and chaotic today as they were back then, Jesus continues to speak. Not here on his own authority, he said, but here by the one who is true, sent from the Father to find you in his reckless love, to entrust to you the gospel and the good news of Jesus, to challenge you with your sin and sinfulness and your need to be forgiven and to find a way back to God, a way to be made clean and restored. And Jesus came to find you in the crowd. I'm with you, he said, only for a short time and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You look for me and you won't find me and you can't come to where I am except anyone who is thirsty may come and drink. And whoever believes, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. Ruth and I were once on holiday in Italy, and we went to a little town which actually does exist called San Pellegrino. How many of you have seen San Pellegrino fizzy water? 
The funniest thing about San Pellegrino is there's a big river flows down the middle of the town, and then there's the water factory, and there's a tiny wee stream flows out the other end of the factory. <laughs> because, if you like, that's a picture of Jesus' invitation. Jesus' invitation for you to be like the San Pellegrino water bottling plant, to come to Jesus and to let the rivers of living water flow into your life so that you may contain it and distribute it around the world. (laughs) Not in bottles that are going to end up washed up or clogging our oceans, but pouring out in an abundance. Many voices, much confusion. In society, in your life, nothing is clear. There is chaos and uncertainty all around us. Well, you're in good company. Twas ever thus. And in the big celebration where everybody else is focusing on the religious things that they had to do, there were only a few people who saw Jesus and believed. There were only a few people who recognized that he was the Messiah. And there would be many others as well. And so, in this confusing world, where Easter will be celebrated with an array of bright yellow, with chocolate, with eggs, with bunnies, with all manner of things that have absolutely nothing to do with an empty tomb and the risen Savior, be be glad and be grateful that Jesus has touched your life and that your response is to be amongst his people. It's a gift and a privilege. It's an invitation to believe and to belong. It's a welcome and it's a reassurance that in a world where there are many voices and much confusion, Jesus' invitation rings across the ages and says to you afresh today, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Because if you're dry and weary in your life, if you're dry and weary in this world, if you're dry and weary, then only Jesus, only Jesus will restore and refresh and give you life and hope and passion and energy and vision. Only Jesus will give to you and you the life that first came from him and that he came to give back to you in all its fullness. Let's pray together.